Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that obviously, you know, like very, very product driven. You know, we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, from his thinking, you know, from the way that he thinks about scaling, you know, as well. Uh, and uh, my God, you know, they're on this rocket ship, you know, they've raised 400 million plus, you know, they're making a killing. But again, you know, super inspiring journey. And I'm sure that you're all going to love, you know, hearing his story. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Drew Bannon, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Excited to be here. So born and raised in Philly. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Oh, gosh. Um, so I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, but I think you're allowed to say Philly if you're if you're less than an hour outside. You know, it's pretty typical suburbanite childhood. Um, I, I got into computers in my teens. Anyway, just, just spent a lot of time like digging into computers, learning about programming. Technology was always interesting to me. When I got to college, I ended up going to school in Philadelphia at a, a university called Drexel University and had some like pretty formative experiences in technology there too. And I know that, you know, you got into computers initially because of your dad. So how did that happen? Yeah, I, I remember him bringing home the, the old Hewlett Packard PC in maybe the early 2000s, something like that. And uh, like a lot of 90s kids have fond memories of the AOL, you know, dial-up sound. But I always like tinkering and and I would you know, play around with their computer and sometimes break it. And um, my parents got fed up with that. So they ended up taking me to um, CompUSA, I think. And we built a computer together from scratch. And so that was like my first real like, okay, I, I could I could play around with computers. I could do this for real. I, I want to spend a lot more time with these going forwards. Um, so that was, that was really like the start of me getting into programming, having my own computer. Um, and I just really love playing with it. And it feels like I, I haven't stopped over the past... Uh, 15 years. And obviously you kept going. You know, you went into, as you were saying, Drexel University, you did your computer science degree there. And then from there, you know, basically you became a software engineer, but you were a software engineer for different companies before you actually went at it, you know, and started your own business. So, so tell us, you know, like what were some of the things that you did and, and, and how did that, you know, those different experiences change the way that you think about building products? Sure. So Drexel has a pretty cool undergrad program where they bake um, like three different co-op, you know, internship experiences into your undergrad experience. So the downside is you're in school for five years and you don't have any summers off. But the upshot is that 
you get to spend 18 months out like working full time with with different companies in your field. Um, so, you know, I did one of these with a, a high frequency stock trading company just outside of Philadelphia. I learned a lot about high performance computing and, and wrangling tons and tons of data. That was a pretty cool experience as a, you know, a 19 or 20 year old. And then from there, I ended up going over to San Francisco and I worked at a, a pretty cool internet radio startup called 8Tracks. Um, so at 8Tracks, you know, I was doing software engineering at first. I was working on the website and we started to do some A-B testing. And so we didn't have any on staff like data analytics folks. So I, I built the split tests. I instrumented the tracking, and then I found myself doing the analytics on the results of the A-B tests you know, in, in Redshift, which was pretty new at the time. And that was the first time that I really got my hands on a cloud data warehouse that was doing analytics for real. And so that kind of planted this bug in my head of, well, software is cool, but writing software on data is even cooler. Um, so I ended up coming back to Philadelphia to finish up school, and I did my, uh, my other third internship with a company called RJ Metrics in Philadelphia. So they were an all-in-one BI tool. It was sort of like the uh, best in class of the previous generation of data and business intelligence. So you know they would connect to different data sources, pull in data, generate derived metrics, visualize them, like the full suite of analytics. Um, and then around 2016, you know Redshift came became really popular, and we started to see companies like Looker and Fivetran and Mode Analytics crop up that all worked with Redshift. And, you know, it was like a, a better, more interactive experience than kind of how this previous generation of BI worked. And so that was sort of the impetus for, for us. And so my two co-founders, Tristan and Connor, worked at RJ Metrics uh, with me. Tristan was actually my boss at, at RJ Metrics. He's the CEO at, at DBT Labs now. Um, that was sort of the, the moment where we saw, okay, there's a new stack emerging and there's a part of it that is not addressed. And that's the sort of like, encoding of business logic or what you might call data transformation piece. And so we started building DBT as open source software kind of around that same era to, to go and transform data in a way that's native to, to the cloud data platforms. So, so obviously, you know, like the, um, the, the team, you know, the, the, the band, you know, got together, you know, as a result of RJ metrics, but, but tell us about how was that transition? Like, I mean, how do you all start to think through this? How do you all come together and decide that it's time to pull the trigger and get going? So, so walk us through that. Yeah, so it started slowly and then proceeded very quickly from there. Um, we started building this thing, DBT. We, we made it open source from the very start. I think the big insight was that this business logic is so valuable and we wanted to avoid a situation where, where folks felt like they didn't own their own logic. Um, we thought that was really important, and we, we saw open source as being a, a good way to do that. So we built DBT as open source. We we put up a GitHub repo, and we started a Slack channel. And, you know, it's important to know at this time, we had formed a company. We were called Fishtown Analytics. I'm actually wearing the, the shirt today. Um, Fishtown is a neighborhood in Philadelphia where we, where we started the company. I actually, I'm in Fishtown right now. Um, so, okay, we set up a Slack channel. We have an open source repository. And then like nothing really happens for a little bit. But Tristan, our CEO, was doing a lot of writing about analytics and kind of the power of cloud data warehouses and this, this quantum leap forward and how analytics you know, should work. And our big insight was that data analytics was the Wild West. It was like so ungoverned. There were no rules. 
And we looked at software engineering as an analog, and we saw that software engineers have decades of best practices that they follow to, to good effect. So the mission for DBT was to take all of these software engineering best practices and bring them to the data analytics workflow. And so that looks like version controlling your code, uh, doing code reviews, writing automated tests, documenting your code, everything that you would expect software engineers on a team to do, we sort of built DBT to help data analysts do. Um, so we wrote a lot about that point of view and people started getting sort of magnetically attracted to it because there were a lot of people that looked at the work they were doing in analytics and thought, gosh, this is, this is nuts. It's hard to reproduce my work. Um, things break and I don't know why until someone tells me that a dashboard's broken, things like that. So that was kind of the seed from which this community around DBT grew. And it started, you know, we had a Slack channel. People would just join in and write in and say, hey, DBT is pretty cool. The things you're saying are resonant and, and I like them. There were other people that wrote in and said, hey, I'm trying to use DBT, but I can't install it on my Windows PC. Can you help me? Um, and so across the whole spectrum of, of people that wanted to be a part of the community, people that needed help with DBT, people trying to help us iterate on features and build new capabilities. Um, these folks all kind of joined the, the DBT Slack community and, and we got to know them by name and meet them in person. And, and that was really this nucleus from which like this, you know, today the DBT community is 70,000 people strong. Um, but it all started with, with uh, 10 or 12 people in a, in a Slack group. That's amazing. So, so obviously, you know, for, for the people that are listening to, I mean, you guys really got, you know, going as a, as a consulting gig. And, uh, and how was that? How was, I mean, do you think that that perhaps, you know, like made it easier because it's not like you gave your notice and then right away you were going to zero. It's like you could, you know, build it, you know, over time and transition it to, into pivoting the product to something that was something more productized versus more service-based as you guys got going with this. Yeah. You know, we always took DBT development seriously and valuable in its own right, but we very much did use it as a part of our analytics consulting engagements. So we mostly worked as a consultancy. We were called you know, Fishtown Analytics in the early days. We worked with mostly Series A funded companies that never had a, a real analytics practice, but now that they had you know, investors and board reporting to do, they needed to take data more seriously. Um, so we would hook them up with you know, a data warehouse and uh, load their data into the data warehouse, use DBT to model it, and crank out you know, some reports for the most important stuff that they cared about. So this could be marketing attribution, product analytics, things like that, you name it. The, the fact that we use DBT in every single one of these engagements helped us really understand the parts of analytics that varies across companies versus what is consistent across companies. So then we could take those kind of consistent themes and encode them into DBT as like product experiences. Because if you're doing analytics at like any e-commerce company in the world, uh, you basically care about the same types of things, right? There's like customers, there's orders, there's returns. And so the specifics around how that data, how that data flows and what your logic is, okay, parts of that vary by company. But you can kind of template out the modeling of Shopify data or Stripe data or something like that. Um, so we created this like package ecosystem where we would template out data transformations and, and help make reporting really easy. And in every single engagement, we learned more about the sort of limits about DBT, and we fed back in insights into like how we should evolve the product to make things easier, more efficient, um, and uh, and more powerful. Um, so, yeah, the consulting 
you know, we did that for from 2016 until about 2020. The hard part is we wanted to keep developing DBT open source, but we needed to do consulting to make money to pay ourselves and employ consultants. And at one point, you know, we had a software engineer working full time on, on DBT open source, which we literally could not charge people money for. There was no SaaS product. There was no commercial offering whatsoever. Um, so we did the calculus on, you know, how many consultants we needed to staff to employ one full-time engineer to build open source software. And we kind of quickly saw that if we wanted to scale out development of DBT and, and make it bigger and better, we would need to actually go and raise money. We couldn't self-fund that through consulting without having like a 100-person consulting arm, which we didn't want to do. And, and, I guess, and I guess real quick here for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of DBT Labs? I mean, how, how do you guys make money? Oh, sure. So around 2020, we launched a product called DBT Cloud. This is a hosted SaaS product. Um, there's a self-service component. So you sign up, swipe a credit card. Um, there's also an enterprise offering uh, that, that sort of we work with larger companies with more sophisticated security compliance collaboration needs. Um, so that's where a true product company SaaS is, is uh, how we make money today. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. How have you guys gone about the um, the capital raising side of things? Because I mean, you, you guys have already raised quite a bit. So uh, how has been that experience of going through all these different rounds and and raising up money, you know, dealing with expectations and, and how things, you know, have shifted too, because you've raised, you know, pre-COVID or the macro environment that we're dealing with today. And, and yeah, so, so tell us what has been the journey there. You know, I can tell you that the process of, of raising our Series A was an interesting one because we truly did not have a lot of software revenue. We had like a, a precursor to DBT Cloud uh, that we, we called it Sinter. It was kind of a silly name in retrospect. But we had like not very much money in recurring revenue. Um, but we had like a, a wildly explosive uh, growth and adoption of DBT open source. So 
we actually had anonymous, we still have anonymous telemetry in, in DBT open source, and we can see how many companies are using DBT, basically. So we observed that the number of companies using DBT grew about 10% month over month for about four years straight. And that was the point in early 2020 where we thought, okay, we have enough confidence that that the market is here and the demand is here, and we should go and, and sort of make this investment to, to build out a SaaS offering and, and try to become a product company. Um, so, you know, like the, the raising money experience in that environment is hard. Like it's, it's more about adoption and energy and passion and TAM size than it is about like software revenue because we hadn't really built the true software SaaS product yet. Um, so that, that was an interesting era. I personally, you know, this is my first rodeo as a founder. And so I was uh, sort of unfamiliar with how to navigate conversations with VCs. And, and I was grateful Tristan, our CEO, ran point on, on sort of all the fundraising, which, you know, makes sense. Um, but I remember meeting one of our investors from Amplify Partners. His name is Lenny. Um, I met Lenny in San Francisco for coffee. And I went into it sort of like um, naive, like, oh, gosh, I'm talking to a VC. And I met Lenny and, and we talked about Seinfeld and data engineering and and hit it off. So um, really fortunate to have such great investors on our team. Um, it's been uh, it's been great working with them. And it, the really fantastic thing is that they can share this broader uh, perspective of kind of what's happening in the market, what's happening in the portfolio and and help kind of nudge us in the right direction. But, you know, really feel like we've got a lot of uh, self-determination here for for where we take the product. And then how, how is it like, like when you raise all this money and, you know, you got all the expectations too in the product and what you need to accomplish. I mean, how do you deal with that? Like crazy, you know, uh, growth and scale and, and how do you go about that? And how are you guys thinking about that now too? Yeah. I mean, it, it's important to have high expectations of yourself. Like if we weren't motivated, this is going to be the most startup foundry thing I've ever said, but if we weren't motivated to wake up in the morning and try to go change the world, no amount of external uh, motivation will will get you there. We've always been a mission driven company, and we care a lot about empowering you know data practitioners to create and disseminate organizational knowledge. So this feels important to me personally because I think the data analyst, you know, the person that can span the technical context and the domain context, should be one of those people really empowered to help make decisions and drive a company forwards. Um, I've seen examples of you know, technologists that kind of lack the broader business context, um, make, call it uh, suboptimal decisions. I've seen the opposite, you know, folks that, that only get the domain, but can't understand the technology, have a hard time really wrangling um, the, the, the tech and moving uh, and having a big impact. So it's those people right in the middle of the technology and the, and the domain knowledge um, that are so well positioned to have each impact. And, and we see DBT as being a tool to help them maximize their impact. Um, so when you start with that mission and you care a lot about it and you're driven by it, you know the, uh, the other expectations that come with raising money, being venture-backed, those feel more like tools that we have in our tool belt to help achieve the mission rather than anything else. And also, what about product leadership? How do you think about the team to, to, to make sure that you guys can you know, push things forward? Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting. Um, as we've grown, you, we've gotten different inputs from people. So I talked about when there were 10 people in DBT Slack. And from 2016 to 2018 or 2019, 
the people that were coming and talking to us and that we reached out to were power users with power user types of concerns. So sometimes they were one person data teams and they had to do it all themselves and, and they had a certain perspective and a certain set of needs and wants and, and goals. And, you, you know, as we grow and, and we work with these um, amazing enterprise companies doing like really powerful things across huge data teams, like hundreds of people, thousands of people, they have very different sets of needs. And so I personally find it valuable to make sure that I'm getting all of those inputs. Because if you're only listening to the power users, you only kind of get one set of concerns. And if you only talk to the people in a 5,000 person data company or a data team, um, that might be too big. Say a thousand person data team, you get a different set of concerns. But if you look at it holistically, then you can build a product that really like is horizontal enough to meet the needs of, of different types of people, different types of problems they're trying to solve, use cases, um, but also that has real depth so that no matter who's using the product, they can kind of get the most out of it and, and get their job done. So I think, you know, it's a little trite, but I think good product leadership starts with knowing your customer and, and talking to them and, and, and knowing what their goals are and helping them achieve their goals. And when you're talking to customers, how do you, how do you think about the questions that you're asking? How do you go about asking the right questions so that you can get the answers that are going to allow you to, to really know how you got to go about building things? Yeah. This is, this is a huge superpower for us. And it comes back to the consulting era. Like we were our own customer. And I find myself really leaning on those experiences, um, doing the data work, you know, being on a consulting contract deadline, feeling the pressure of, you know, people talk about using a tool in anger. Like what does DBT feel like when you're super stressed about um, your CFO asking you for the updated board numbers? Like, does DBT help you solve the problem or does it stand in your way? So I think us being that customer ourselves or, or even more personally, like me doing the analytics work, either in one of these college internships or, or here at DBT Labs consultant, it really helps me empathize with folks and talk about it less as like an interview and more as a like a peer collaborator, like, how should this work? How do we think it should work? And I find that folks are, are kind of able to get to the root of uh, whatever their problem is or whatever their need is in those kinds of conversations. So then let's say, talk about, you know, where, where things are heading and, and let's talk about the future here. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Drew, and you wake up in a world where the vision, you know, the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? Wow, what a good question. It's hard. It's a little, it's a little um like Sisyphus, you know, like the roll the ball has to roll back down the hill in order for you to be able to wake up tomorrow and do it again. I, I think like a lot of um fidgety founders, uh, one of my fears is not having anything to do and getting really bored. So I'm I'm grateful that we have an ambitious mission that uh will take you know a long time to realize in full. But to me, if we did realize it. It would look like, you know, data teams having a seat at the table, data folks being uh, respected for the, what they can contribute to the organization, you know, viewed as, as a, a group of people that can help make better outcomes happen faster. And for the people using DBT, I hope it feels like, like a really indispensable tool in their toolkit in the same way that, you know, software engineers think about Git or Python or you name it. It's like, it'd be hard for me to do my job without this thing. 
And so I, I think that when we, when we think about realizing the mission, what's kind of happened is we started by thinking about individuals. It's like, what's that individual experience of using DBT? And now if we've, as we've grown and, and we're working with you know, bigger and, and, and more sophisticated um, types of organizations, uh, let me say like bigger organizations with more sophisticated types of problems to solve, um, specifically those around collaboration, we're kind of seeing that the multiplayer experience of DBT is just as important as the single player experience. Like if you really want to maximize someone's um, impact as an individual contributor, a great way to do that is by helping their team maximize its impact and by helping their team collaborate with other teams. So a lot of the product we're working on today and that we think we're going to be working on in the future too is around this collaboration you know, within a team and across teams and helping folks... Um, uh, like avoid bottlenecks. We can go so deep on this if it's interesting, but but helping helping avoid bottlenecks, helping folks collaborate across teams, um, making it so that the more people using DBT, like the better the experience. And one one thing that you may appreciate there, you know, since since you're a product guy, how do you go about aligning, you know, product with vision? We start with the vision. I think we've always done this, and we'll find out if it's a good idea or a bad idea. But we kind of lean on our experiences and we try to imagine what should be true in the future that is not true today. And then we try to go and figure out how we build the product to, to realize that vision. Um, it's still very important that we like talk to customers and, and hear feedback and integrate what they have to say into our, our product thinking. But it's, it's so trite. But it's the Henry Ford quote about if you ask people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And I think it's just one of those things where DBT was born out of an ecosystem shift. You know, it was a, a platform shift. It was the advent of Redshift and then, you know, Snowflake, BigQuery, Cloud Data Warehouses, put Databricks in that camp too, and there's more beyond that. We were able to see the platform shift on the horizon and build a product that would help people maximize their impact with these new platforms. And so it's always in the back of my mind, like, what's the next platform shift? Like, what's the next step change, um, you know, increase in capability and where's that going to come from? And those things are rarely linear and people really rarely ask for them by name. So when we think about vision, we try to imagine like, where's this whole ecosystem going? And how do we adapt the tried and true principles of, you know, software engineering to that reality? Um, today, that looks like, you know, the the DBT that, that you can use at, cloud.gettpt.com uh, if, if you want. Um, tomorrow, I don't know. That's where we get into these conversations about things like streaming and and um, potentially other types. You know, it's, we could talk about like Python and SQL and how they work in the data platforms. Like that's kind of the universe, the the uh, the art of the possible, I guess. Um, but we always, we always try to start with like, how do we think the work should be done and then work backwards to what's the product experience that will support it? I love that. Now, we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. So let's say I was to bring you back in time. You know, maybe to that point that you were still in RJ Metrics, you know, and you guys were like brainstorming, doing something of your own and, and, and so forth. And let's say you had the opportunity of going into one of those, you know, sessions that maybe you guys did at, at Starbucks or something, and you were able to sit down right there with all of you. And you were able to give everyone right there on the spot one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? 
You know, I, I do think about this sometimes. I don't think I've ever said this to, to anyone. Um, I wish we raised money before we actually did. So going from bootstrapped to venture backed required us to have a lot of confidence that the thing we were building was durable and could exist for a long time. And, and we talked about wanting to build a company that could exist for decades. Like we really didn't and don't want to be a flash in the pan here. Um, so we, we care about sustainability. And so raising venture capital was something we took really seriously. But in retrospect, what happened was the, the community grew much faster than our capability to support it with software and products. Because, you know, there were probably a thousand companies using DBT at the time when we were still Fishtown Analytics and still, you know, building open source software exclusively. So I think that if we had a little bit more of a head start, it could have, the growth compounds. Uh, I, I wonder where we would be today if we had an extra year uh, of growth growth behind us. But um, that's the one thing that I really wish, eh, who knows, who knows what happens in that alternate universe. But I, I'm curious if, if um, I'm curious how things would have gone if we raised money a year earlier. I hear you. I hear you. So Drew, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Sure. I'm on uh, the DBT Slack, which is free to join. Uh, you can you can join us uh, at community.dbt.com. Uh, I'm at Drew Bannon in there. Or you could catch me on um, the app formerly known as Twitter that I think is now called X. I'm at Drew Bannon. <laughs> okay. Amazing. Well, hey, that's that's super easy then. Uh, and uh, Drew, thank you so much for taking the time. It has been an honor to have you on the Dealmaker Show today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you again so much for having me on. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.